All right, hello. Welcome, glad you guys made it. It's good to see everyone here. It's great to be gathered together here in the room, on the patio, online, every flavor of gathering. I wanna tell you a story about my grandfather. He lived in St. Louis, worked in an office during the week, but he had this dream of having a place in the country where he could raise horses. So at one point, he bought a plot of land a little bit outside the city of San Francisco, and he wanted to build his own house there. But, um, you know, he thought, you know, there's not YouTube yet, so how do I know how to build a house? So he did what you did in the 1950s when you wished there was YouTube. You bought a book. And I have the actual book that my grandfather used. It's called Your Dream Home, How to Build It for Less. And this book goes through step-by-step building your home, financing your home, the foundation, floor plans, framing the house, chimney, plumbing, wiring, heating, walls and ceilings, all the steps you need to build a house are right here. So every weekend, my grandfather would drive out to his property and he would go through the next step in building this house until eventually he had a home and eventually he moved out there and he raised horses. And I remember visiting him out there and riding some of those horses that he had in this home that he had built. Well, you may not realize it, but we are building something here. Or perhaps it's better to say something is being built. And you'll see why I make that distinction in a little bit. What's being built here is a community. It's a community of people that are different, that have unique backgrounds, that come from various uh, ethnic backgrounds that have different personalities, work in different industries, have unique ways of looking at the world. And somehow, what's happening here in this place, right here at Peninsula Bible Church, is that this group of people is being built into a home. And what we're going to look at this morning is how God says he's building this community into a home for him to live in. Now, when you're building a house, the thing that you want to do is to make sure that the house doesn't fall down. So we're going to build a house that stays up. When you're building a community, the thing on your mind is to build a community that doesn't split apart. You want to build a community that stays together. So what we're going to see in our passage this morning is how, verse by verse, the Apostle Paul will describe this incredibly rich theology of the steps that God has taken to build a home that stays together. We're going to see God building his dream home this morning. God's dream home. Now, This is such an important issue in our culture today. Before the pandemic, researchers had concluded that uh, the United States had become more polarized, more and faster than over the past four decades than any other democracy in the world. And we talked about this a lot before the pandemic, how divided we were, how polarized we were, and then COVID. And for like a minute, Everybody came together because we fought this pandemic together. And then masks and vaccines and boosters and mandates and inside and outside and all the things. 
And now it feels like we are more divided than ever. And what I want to suggest to you this morning, and I know this is a bold claim, but I believe, and the Bible says, that the kind of unity that we want, that we long for as people, is only attainable through the person of Jesus Christ. True, lasting unity where different people come together in forgiveness, in self-sacrifice, in understanding, in love, that kind of unity only happens in the person of Jesus. We're going to see why this morning. We're going to see how God goes about building a community that is unified in him. The way this plays out is in three sections. First, we're going to see how God takes two different sets of people and he brings both of them close to him. So we're going to start with this kind of vertical dimension of people being brought near to God. And then in the second section, we're going to see how God takes those groups of people and connects them together in the kind of horizontal movement. Having built the frame, then we're going to see how God then fashions a home out of this structure. And as he does that, I want us to be considering how we've experienced that here in this particular community. Asking ourselves the question, has God been doing that? Is he doing that? How do we see those things going on among us? And hopefully we'll see God's intentions for us and how he's trying to build us into a home. Well, as Scott said last week, we saw this really powerful picture of grace that saves all of us. I love the uh, quote that, got, that Scott used last week. It says that grace gives us a reorientation from living anxiously by my wits and muscle to living effortlessly in the world of God's active presence. Last week, we saw grace at work mostly on a personal level. This week, what we're going to see is grace at work on a social level, how grace works in and through the community. So as we kick this off, I want you to listen to the metaphor that the Apostle Paul uses. Last week, we heard about how we were dead and God made us alive. This week, we're going to hear about how we were far away and God brings us near. Listen to verses 11 to 13. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. These verses contain the only imperative 
in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. The only instruction given to people in this first half of the book is an intellectual instruction. The readers are told to remember. Remember something that used to be true. Now, these words were originally written to a particular group of people called Gentiles in the first century. Those are people who were not ethnically Jewish. And Paul describes these people with a lot of strong language. They grew up without access to God. They were excluded from the benefits of faith. Says they were once far off. And the way this life that the readers are supposed to remember is described is, is chilling. There is ridicule being called derogatory names. God is far away. You are unaccustomed to being connected to anything outside of yourself. They're excluded from promise. The, the sense that my life is harder, that I don't have access to the things that other people have access to. And you're, and you're strangers to uh, this promise as if, as if the world is, is tilted in favor of other people. Paul's conclusion is that they are without hope and without God in the world. Now today, the distinction between Gentiles and Jews is not as significant. But think about this portrait of life. A life where there is no privilege. A life where there's no connection to something outside of yourself. A life where you feel like Others have it better, that you're left out, that you work harder. A life of rivalry, competition, name-calling, factions. And we can see that not much has changed in 2,000 years. It may not be Gentiles and Jews, but there are plenty of categories where these things play out in our world today. Think about history. Think about the conflict that has spanned the course of time, whether it's the world wars or revolutionary wars or prejudice, civil rights movement. Think about all of these things that have played out. That's the grand scale, but then it's also true on the micro scale of our lives. Consider this last week of your life. Have you experienced Rivalry, competition, exclusion, lack of access to resources, a feeling that there's no hope. This is the story of, of life that Paul is presenting. This is life apart from God. And he may um, here be drawing a distinction in time. He says, remember what was... But even if we don't resonate with that, because some of us have a period in our lives where we felt this acutely, but others of us may have grown up in the church and we don't have this time where we didn't know God, but, but we know those dynamics. We know what that feels like. We resonate with that experience. 
And so his encouragement to us is to remember that sense, remember life without God. And the reason that we need to remember that is because that's the why for building the home that we're talking about. That's what it's like to be homeless. That's what life is like when you don't have a community of people gathered as one in Christ. And it's helpful to constantly have that picture before us because what he says is that that's not the case anymore. He says, but now you have been brought near. And that's an incredible picture. In our world, you see signs like, no trespassing, keep out, authorized personnel only. You might get a message from someone, stay away, keep out of my business, stay your distance. That's the world apart from Christ. But in Christ, Paul says, God has said, Come here. You're good. Come close. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. You belong with me. Those are the words of of faith. And it's such a difference, even just the way that feels to be held at arm's length versus being brought near. See, the first thing that Paul does here in this text to to help us to understand how this home is being built is to show us how individuals are brought near to God. He builds these vertical supports that when you build a house, you start by building a foundation and you want to make sure the weight can, can hold. And so you build the structure up. That's what Paul's doing. He's showing how different people are brought near to God. And that's the first step, but it doesn't end there because having been brought near to God, and then he goes on to show how they are connected one to another. As you read these next few verses, listen for words of connection, words like both and one and reconciled and together. We're going to hear all of these horizontal type terms that show the connections that God is building. Here's chapter two, verses 14 through 18. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
This first line amazes me. Paul says, he himself is our peace. That's the person of Jesus. He says, Jesus, the, it's not a set of ideas that unites us. It's not a common cause. It's not some structure or organization. It is a person. He is our peace. And the peace that's being described here is not that like warm sense you get when, when things are okay in your life. The peace he's talking about here is a social peace. It's lack of hostility between two warring factions. Jesus creates peace between enemies. You can see that through all this language. He made us both one. He broke down the dividing wall. He reconciles us both. Christ unites people who hate each other. But if we read the passage closely, we we tell that that peace doesn't come easily, that something has to be destroyed in order for that peace to come about. And in the case of the original readers, we had Jews and Gentiles, and there was something that stood between them. It was described as the law expressed in ordinances. That thing kept them apart, but but, but it seems like it was more than that thing because it's called the dividing wall of hostility. There was an enmity between these people. Now, we don't have the same wall that divides us in our culture, but there's other things. So I want to brainstorm with you for a minute. I know it's going to be really hard to think of these things, but, but what are some of the things that divide us? I mean, really dig deep, try to find something that divides us in our culture. Go ahead and shout them out. What, what divides us? Money divides us, definitely. Politics. Politics divides us. Somebody over here? Religion, Religion divides us, yeah. Faith. Say again. Race. Faith. Race. 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 Thank you. Race, sorry. <laughs> Hearing divides us. What's that? Geographics. Geographics, yeah. Yeah, where we live. Some of the first, what's that? Sports. Sports divides us. Well, I mean, we're all 49ers fans, right? So that, that doesn't, doesn't divide us here. <laughs> yeah, sports. Some of the first service said language. Like, you can't even talk to each other. Technology divides us, yeah. Time, yep. So education, for sure. So there's all these things that, that come between people, but, but I want to think about this deeply with you because I, I want to suggest something, that perhaps it's not those things that divide us, but something else. See, for the Jews and Gentiles, God created the law that made them into distinct categories of people. But in Romans, Paul talks similarly about the law. And he says this, he said that the law was there, but sin came in and took advantage of the law to bring death. And I think that there's something similar at work among us as a community. 
that we have these things that distinguish us, but sin comes in, takes advantage of those distinctions, and turns them into divisions. And I think the primary sin at work here is pride. Pride takes a distinction and makes it a division. Pride says, you and I are different, and because we're different, I'm better than you. You're wrong. You're the enemy. You're a threat to me. Pride takes all these things and creates hatred, enmity, and hostility. Which I think helps us to understand this passage because what the apostle says is that Jesus destroyed the dividing wall of hostility at the cross. But it doesn't exactly make sense to say that he destroyed the law. What he did do was to destroy our pride. Because when we come to God, we bring nothing. That's what we learned last week. We are all saved by grace. We are all saved because of God's favor toward us, not because of anything that I bring. At the cross, there is no pride because there are no distinctions. None of us have anything to offer God. We all are the same. It doesn't matter if you went to Stanford or junior college or don't have a college degree or never went to school at all. It doesn't matter if you have a job as a CEO or a entry-level worker or don't even have a job that you can find. It doesn't matter what race you are, what language you speak. I don't think it matters what sports team you root for, but that one's a little iffy. But generally, things don't matter. At the cross, we're all the same. We are all the same in Christ. Now remember, when I speak of pride, that pride has two forms. Pride has the form where I say, I'm better than you because we're different. But pride also has the opposite form where I say, I'm not worth anything because we're different. You're better than me. And I hate you not because I feel superior to you, but because I feel inferior to you. And those things often flip-flop in our lives. But no matter which form it is, that, that sin creates the hostility between us. And so what Jesus did by dying for each one of us is to erase our pride and invite us to him in complete humility. And humility then is the, is the tool God uses to unite us. Humility leads to unity. When we first started talking about Ephesians, we looked at the, in the first chapter where the phrase mystery of God's will is used. And we've subtitled this series, The Mystery of Christ. And we looked at what that mystery is in the first chapter. And that plays out throughout the book is that God has this plan to unite all things. In chapter one, it says uh, his plan, his will is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
It's this cosmic kind of unity where the whole cosmos is coming together in the person of Jesus. After that sermon that I preached, somebody came up to me and said, you really like that word cosmic, don't you? I use it like a hundred times, but it's true. That's what God is doing. This cosmic unity. But what we find is that the way God begins to unite the cosmos is to unite us. To bring people who hate each other, to destroy the pride which creates hostility and connect us in one. One new man, one new humanity, devoid of pride. We keep our distinctions They're just no longer divisions. So Paul began in this passage by by creating these these vertical supports, how each of us are brought near to God. And having created that, then he said, the next thing God does is he draws us together, Jews and Gentiles together, breaking down hostility, creating one new community. And then in the third part of this passage, we're going to see this metaphor of God's dwelling place. And how God then takes this framing that he's done and he fills it into a community. So listen to verses uh, 19 to 22. And notice also that the tense has changed. That before we were talking in past tense. And notice all the present ongoing tense that's used in these verses. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. These verses begin with a reminder of what's happened. You are no longer. They move on to the situation that has occurred. You are members of the household of God. And then they talk about this ongoing work. You are being built that, that, that tense is present tense. It's daily. It's constantly happening. The dwelling place of God is under construction constantly. When I was in India a few years ago for one of our mission trips, I noticed something curious about some of the buildings. I took this picture here, um, and you might notice a lot of the buildings have rebar coming out of it. We were staying in this pretty nice compound, and, and, but all the buildings still had rebar poking up out of the top floor. And I asked our hosts, why, why leave that rebar there? And they said, well, the government taxes properties under construction differently than if they're completed. So we just leave it under construction forever, and we get a tax break out of it. So it made sense to me. Uh, apparently, this is common. I looked it up in, in lots of parts of the world. You see similar uh, phenomena. But that, that image was helpful to me because I think that's what's true for us as a community. We are constantly under construction. This community that God is building is not something that is built and then enjoyed. It's a constant work of the Spirit among us. 
And that's helpful because construction zones are dangerous. That's why we put fences up around them. You, you go to one part of it and you say, well, this is basically done. But then you walk to another part and there's a hole that you fall in. Or there's piping that's not done. Or there's live electrical wires. And, and you don't always know where is safe and where isn't safe. And the same is true of our community. There are places where we have an incredible degree of unity and collaboration and oneness. And you think, this is heaven on earth. And then the next day you experience something and say, what on earth is this? I just fell in a hole. I didn't even know it was there. There's this conflict that came out of nowhere. And that's the nature of a project that's under construction. Different parts progress at different speeds. And so to experience that is, is to know that God's at work and something is happening day by day. So for us then, the, uh, the encouragement is to allow God to do this. We're going to find out later in the book of Ephesians our, our part in the work of God, in the work of this community. But for now, all the language is about what God is doing here. God is the one building us into a house. So for us, the goal is to be built together, to allow God to do that work in us as a people. When the pandemic first started, I had this reaction and this sarcastic comment that I kept saying, I kept saying, great, as if we needed one more thing to divide over. Now we have a pandemic to split us. I thought about that and I thought about that uh, in relation to the text that we're looking at this morning. And it's kind of changed my perspective because I've started thinking about these things that we tend to divide over as maybe they are the building blocks that God uses to draw us as one. And so maybe a better comment would be, this is great. God has given us one more thing to unify in spite of. And I want to ask you to to shout out the same answers to the question I asked earlier, but I'm going to frame it as a different question. So the question now is, what are the things in our culture that could divide us, but God can use to unite us? What are they? That was a lot at once. Money, politics, race, (laughs) tragedy. Yeah, definitely. Sports. Sports. Thank you. (laughs) Love. Love. Yeah. Death. Technology. All of these things that, that could split us apart are things that God can use to connect us because we can experience the unity that Christ gives us. The language Paul uses in this text is he says that we are being joined together. Think about that phrase. It's very active. It's something that's happening. It's very connective. Um, And it's it's a construction term. I've done a little bit of woodworking. I know a lot of people here have done a lot more. Um, But basically, when you're building something out of wood, you're either cutting the wood or you're joining it, right? 
And, and there's like the very simple way to join two pieces of wood, which is like put one on top of the other and put a nail between it. Right? But then as you get into woodworking, you learn there's all these different methods to connect two pieces of wood together. So look at this. Here's a diagram of different types of wood joinery. There's the basic butt. No middle school humor here. Um, there's the biscuit joint. I do love biscuits. Uh, box joint, rabbit joint, dado, whatever that is, tongue and groove. There's all these different techniques to connect two pieces of wood. And then when you get really advanced in woodworking, what you start doing is you start making intricate joins that are also beautiful. So look at this picture of some really beautiful ways that you connect two blocks of wood together. And notice the technique here is to actually highlight the difference. You want to see where one piece of wood ends and the other begins because you want to see how they're coming together. So that's the imagery that Paul is using in this text to say that that's the work that God is doing here among us, that he is joining us together. And each one of those joins between different groups, between different individuals, between different perspectives is different. And I would say that it even has the potential to be beautiful, to highlight the distinction and to show the unity that occurs even in its midst. This is what God is doing. And when he does this, the the result is something unbelievable that, that us, with all of our differences and rough edges and perspectives and biases and hurt feelings and all of this, that we would become a place that is worthy of the God of the universe to take up residence in. We are the home of God, his dwelling place. Us, this group of people, with all the saints around the world and throughout time, joined together in him. That's an incredible work. When my grandfather finished his, his house, he built his dream home. I don't know if it was for less or not, but um, it's pretty cool looking through this and seeing the notes he took on some of these pages about how he did this. And this image of construction is, is helpful for me. But there's one last thing I want to remind us of, because it's easy for us as people that like to accomplish things, people that like to solve problems, to think of ourselves as the builders. But remember, we aren't the builders. We're the building. God is the builder. We are the ones being built. Now we can recognize the work and and appreciate it and probably participate in it in, in some degree. We'll see more about that later. But this is what God is doing in us here. I want to invite the band to come back up forward. And we're going to continue in worship. And I want to invite you to consider some of these ideas as we worship. We're going to sing this new song that we learned last week called A Thousand Hallelujahs. And I love how Lindsay introduced it last week, reminding us of all the hallelujahs that have been said here in this room over the course of the years. And uh, 
I want us to think about the community that as we sing together, our voices are actually being joined uh, in harmonies, in melodies. They're coming together. And even the title of the song, A Thousand Hallelujahs, I thought, you know, just in the first service alone, we probably said hallelujah a thousand times between all the people that were there and the times we repeated it. So a thousand hallelujahs might seem like a big number, but it's actually kind of an understatement. (laughs) There's a lot more than a thousand hallelujahs going on here. And as that happens, we experience something. We we experience a piece of that vision of that what is to come of us being the kind of place where God can dwell. So let's worship him. Let's turn our hearts to him and remember that God is building his dream home here in us.